All right, if you have a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 3 in your New Testament. Luke chapter 3. We're going to spend a little bit of time in the first part of Luke chapter 3 for the first sermon of the new year. Can you believe it? It's already 2021. 2020 wasn't the greatest of years for a lot of people. Maybe this year will be a better year. Most people at the beginning of a year start the year by making some sort of New Year's resolution. Maybe you're that kind of person or maybe you resist New Year's resolutions. And a lot of preachers typically at the end of a year will kind of do a year in review and maybe at the beginning of the year do some sort of New Year's resolution type of sermon. This is not going to be a New Year's resolution. However, the one thing I do like about the start of a new year is a lot of people can view it kind of like you're getting a fresh start. Last year was rough. Let's get a fresh start. As we start fresh this year, let me ask you two questions. And I'll try to explain a little bit more about these two questions as the sermon goes on. If you'd like to take notes, if you're one of those people that used to love having a bulletin insert when we were meeting here at the building, we'll write this down. Here's two questions I want you to think about, and I'll kind of come back to it as the lesson goes on. What is one thing that you need to stop doing? What is one thing that you need to stop doing? And what is one thing that you need to start doing? What do you need to stop doing? What do you need to start doing? When I was younger, I used to love to play wiffle ball out in the front yard. I mean, that was how we spent a lot of our summers and even sometimes uh, spring and fall. Me and my brothers and sometimes some friends would come over or even our neighbors we just play two-on-two in our front yard, and we had a lot of obstacles in the way in the yard. A home run was over our roof or our neighbor's roof, and we just kind of played around the trees. Uh, it was a lot of fun. We, we'd even got some leagues going. And I considered myself a pretty good wiffle ball player. I could hit pretty well. And I would get, step up to, to bat when it was my turn to hit, and I would swing as hard as I possibly could. And sometimes I would be able to crank it over the neighbor's yard and sometimes I would or the neighbor's house and sometimes I would completely whiff like I would swing with all of my might and just completely miss the ball couldn't really figure out why one day my dad was coming home from work and he stopped in the driveway and he just kind of watched us play for a little bit and he called me over and he says I have one piece of advice for you and my dad told me slow down your swing you're swinging too hard you're swinging for the fences every time and that's why you're you're missing it sometimes all you have to do is just slow your swing down just a little bit, and then you'll be able to still hit it hard, but you won't whiff as much. So I put his advice into practice. He told me just one practical thing to do, and I did it, and it worked. And I became one of the best wiffle ball players in the neighborhood, and that was a big deal back then. Some people may argue I wasn't, but I felt like I was. And all it was was just one piece of advice, and I've followed my dad's advice uh, even in church league softball, just slow your swing down a little bit. Really, all he told me to do was stop doing one thing and start doing another. What is something, and, and think? don't think in terms of sports or exercise or dieting, but think about your spiritual life, your walk with God, and how would you answer that? What is one thing you need to stop doing and one thing you need to stop, start doing? Something practical, and maybe it seems simple. Maybe you could write it down in one sentence, but maybe it would make a big change in your life. Now, keep that question in mind. We're going to study through Luke chapter 3. Uh, Jeff Simpson read us the text earlier, and I appreciate Jeff doing that. And now what we're going to do is just kind of walk through Luke chapter 3, the ministry of John the Baptist. 
we'll see what God maybe has to say to us through his word. And then you'll see why I asked that question here in just a minute. So let's start Luke chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler over the region of Atyria and Traconitus, Lysanus ruler of Abilene. These are hard names to say. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. All right, you get these first two verses here, and you may be thinking, why do I need to know this? What does this have to do with anything? Luke lists seven names, seven political rulers, and yes, I do include the high priest in that list of political rulers of, of the first century. So why is this important? Why does Luke include this? Well, maybe just for the sake of history. We know these names, and we know that Jesus and his ministry and John and his ministry, they existed within a specific historical, cultural setting. All right, Luke gives us a little history, but more than that, uh, life was hard for the Jewish people of that time. They had been oppressed by the Romans. Uh, the Romans had made their way in and occupied their land, and they were claiming the Roman emperor, Caesar, as a god, and they brought in images into the city of Jerusalem. Herod the Great, many years before this, had put on some brutal taxes on the people, and his sons, Herod's sons, who are now ruling, had also uh, imposed these taxes. So most of the people were hungry for something different. I mean, the uh, it was ripe for a change, ripe for a change. And maybe Luke's including these rulers in here to show us that's why people responded so well to John's message. But if you look a little closer, this, these Luke chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 are two of my favorite verses, but look really close here at the way he transitions from these political rulers. And then after that first comma in verse 2, it says, The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. I think what Luke is doing here is he's showing us that you have all these powerful people, these local governors, the emperor, the you know whatever it may be, even the high priest in Jerusalem, you have all these people in place and the word of God comes. And the word of God does not come to any of those guys. The word of God comes to this rag-wearing, locust-eating, a priest's son out in the wilderness. When the word of God comes, that's where it comes. Maybe Luke puts this in there to, as a reminder to all of us that when we get really obsessed with politics and we're always constantly worrying about who's in power and how they're ruling and all that stuff, maybe this is a kind of a subtle reminder that God is still working, and sometimes God's working out in the margins and places and within people that maybe we wouldn't expect. Maybe Luke also puts this in there because it's a reminder to us that, yeah, we live in these kingdoms of the earth, but ultimately we belong to the kingdom of God. So the word of God comes to this guy out in the wilderness. And then we read a little bit about his ministry. Here's a summary of his ministry. This is where he gets the name John the Baptist. Verse 3, he went to all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John is preaching repentance. It's a Greek word, metanoia, which means turn around, do a, a U-turn, a 180. If you're going one direction, go the other direction. And he's baptizing people. He's preaching. And what we're about to find out is he's preaching a pretty difficult message. 
I heard this old preacher's story many years ago about three preachers that went to lunch, and they all three in this town had a problem with squirrels who were in the attic, and they were coming down into the auditorium. And they were trying to do everything they could to get rid of these squirrels. They had set traps, and they had tried to catch them. And one of the preachers said, I got rid of the squirrels. And they're like, well, how? You know, we, we've tried everything. How did you get rid of them? And he said, simple. I baptized them, and I never saw them again. Now, it's kind of a goofy preacher story to share about, you know, some churches that really evangelize and reach out, baptize, and then people disappear. But I share that here because I think about John and his ministry and all these people that have come out there to be baptized by him. But yet John was, we're about to see, he was talking straight talk to these people. He was not sugarcoating the message. He was giving them a life change, preparing the way for Jesus and teaching a pretty tough message. Now, for those of you who think that John uh, invented baptism, he didn't. Uh, ritual cleansing was common in Judaism and people would come to the temple in Jerusalem and there was all these mikvahs set up outside and, and they, there were baptisms that took place. So baptism wasn't necessarily a new thing, but where John was baptizing was a new thing, out in the Jordan River, out in the wilderness, not connected with the temple. And he's going to tell us that when Jesus comes, he's going to baptize with not just water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. So then we get this quote from in verse 4 through 6, and, and the quote is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 through 5. The vo- it, Well, first Luke says, As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill be, shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's good news. John's purpose, as we see combined here with the rest of the Gospels, his purpose was to prepare the way for Jesus. And he's, in doing so, is fulfilling the prophet Isaiah, prepare the way of the Lord and then make the paths straight. Raise the valleys up and lower the mountains. Well, for us... That may not seem like that big of a deal because we live in a world where we have paved roads that we drive around on all the time. If you go up into the mountains, there might be a bridge that you can cross. So in a way, the valleys have been raised up and then there's tunnels that go through mountains. So the mountains, in a sense, have been leveled out and made low. But if you think about the first century and if you're able to kind of use your imagination and place yourself in that context... Their roads were pretty rough. They didn't have paved roads. Most roads were very rocky. Sometimes there were boulders on them. Sometimes it was impossible to pass through certain roads. When we travel somewhere today, we could just pull up a GPS or Google Maps on our phone or Apple Maps, and we'll use a a screen and a navigation system to get us somewhere. Travel in the first century was a little bit more difficult, and when the roads were hard to pass or you had to pass through mountains or valleys— It was a pretty difficult thing. You couldn't just drive through it. So imagine the image that's used here by the prophet Isaiah and that Luke is using for John the Baptist. That's what he's doing. He is making the roads, the the paths smooth. He's preparing the way for Jesus out in the wilderness, speaking to people's hearts and baptizing them. And here is a little summary in verse 7 through 9 of John's message. This is just a summary, but listen to it. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers. I'm not real sure what Tony would have said that in. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Whew. That seems kind of intense. Some of this is apocalyptic-type language. John first says, You brood of vipers, who, who warns you to flee from this coming wrath? Ironically, for a lot of people in the crowd that were baptized by John and heard this message, John is the one that, that warned them. He calls them a brood of vipers, and then he talks about the tree and, and the repentance, turning around, turning from a sin, a life change. He's saying that you should bear good fruit. Like, your actions should show that you really did turn things around. And, and Jesus kind of uses a similar language in, in, like, Luke chapter 6, verse 43 through 45 as an example. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. Similar language to what John is, is talking about here. And John talks about an axe being at the root of the tree. Uh, basically, John is preaching and teaching with a sense of urgency because he is preparing the people to see Jesus. All of that, those first nine verses set up for what I really want to kind of focus on. I think those first nine verses are important and God's word is fully capable of speaking something to you that I wasn't even intending today. But now let's kind of narrow the focus to verse 10 through 14. The crowds asked him, what then should we do? What then should we do for the next few verses three different times John has asked this question what do we need to do what should we do and all three times John gives them something specific he he gives them a, a kind of a short one sentence here's one thing you need to stop doing one thing you need to start doing so I'll share with you just kind of an insight into a preacher's life as I've learned how to preach and I'm still working on improving that uh, preaching a true word from God's word, grace and truth, and preaching an effective message. You know, I'm still working on that. But one piece of advice I learned a while back that's been really helpful is to just have one main theme. Instead of having a bunch of points and a whole bunch of things that I share from the text, just kind of have one main theme that you can work throughout the sermon. Most people can't sit and listen for long anymore, and it's hard for people to retain knowledge. So, be with the text, like Luke chapter 3, and as you study through it, see if there's one main theme that kind of emerges, and then focus on that one thing. I love sermons. I've benefited from a lot of sermons throughout my life that are those three, four-point sermons. Those are great sermons. But somebody asked me, if you preach a three-point sermon, and then you prepare your sermon for the next week, and you preach the next week, can you remember your three points from the week before? And if you can't, as a preacher, most of your congregation probably can't either. That's why it's more effective to just kind of have one main theme and base all your examples and your entire focus of the sermon around that one main theme. So for me, if and it's not always perfect, but if I can find that one main theme from the text, that's the way I go about editing out material. Save it for another time if it doesn't fit the one main theme. Hopefully you kind of get where I'm going with that. But it's, it's helpful for people to have one thing that they can kind of grasp and chew on for the week instead of a whole bunch of stuff and then get lost in all of it. So one main, one specific thing. And that's what John is doing 
when he gives responses here in the next few verses, he gives them one main thing to focus on, to chew on, to think about, and maybe even to change in their life. So the first question from the whole crowd, what should we do? Verse 11, in reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. There's one thing that you can do. Uh, if you have an abundance, if God has blessed you and you have clothes and food, well, look to people who don't have those things and share with them. There's one thing that you can do. That's what he tells the crowd. Be generous. And we'll see that in, reflected in Jesus as well. Verse 12, even the tax collectors came to be baptized and they asked, teacher, what should we do? So now a specific group of people with the occupation of tax collectors, they're asking this question and his response it's simple. Here's one thing you can do. He says, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Pretty simple, right? As a tax collector, John's not saying, here's what you should do. Stop being a tax collector. You're a traitor. That's not what he says. He doesn't tell them to leave their jobs. He just simply says, stop collecting more than you need to. So what's going on underneath this one seemingly simple statement, which would have been life-changing for them, was be an honest tax collector. Stop getting rich off of other people and using your position to take advantage of people. Be an honest tax collector. And if any of these tax collectors that came out to be baptized by John took his one specific thing to do and took it serious, that would have been life-changing for them. And it probably could have changed their life and hurt them financially. But if they're willing to put it into practice, see, it's one simple thing that could be life-changing. They want to know what to do, John tells them. In verse 14, soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money and from anyone, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Boom, there's one thing you can do, soldiers. Be satisfied with what you're getting paid and stop abusing and take advantage of people. There's probably a good chance that those soldiers were underpaid and they had power and they had authority, so they maybe they were taking advantage of people and using their power and kind of bullying people to get more. And John's saying, stop doing that. Be satisfied with what you have, even if it's not a high-paying job, and don't take advantage of people. And then, if you scroll down a little bit in chapter 3, I'm just kind of hitting around a few spots here. Uh, we're told that John winds up in prison, and here's why. Herod the ruler, who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the things, evil things Herod had done, added them added to them all by shutting up John in prison. John gets in trouble with Herod, a man of great power, because John, like everybody else, was talking straight talk to him. He was telling Herod, what you've done with your brother's wife, that's wrong. You need to stop doing that and stop doing some of these other evil things. So there's John's message. I mean, some of it's kind of tough, some of it's kind of difficult, but it's really just one specific thing that you need to do. Now, I want you to use your imagination for just a moment. What, what was John's purpose? Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way for Jesus to come. So imagine it's a new year. It's a fresh start, 2021. You're trying to prepare the way for Jesus to come into your heart further, deep into your soul. Um, and imagine you go out into the river. You go out into the wilderness right by the river, and you meet John the Baptist. And imagine asking John this question, what should I do? 
How would John answer that to you? What would John tell you, specifically you, the listener of this? Here's what you need to do. Here's one thing that you need to stop doing, and here's one thing that you need to start doing. I imagine what John would tell you would be simple, yet it would be life-changing. That's my question for you as we start this new year. And maybe, maybe it's a sin in your life. Maybe I'm not sure what it would be. I really wish I could say, if I was talking to you one-on-one, say, here's specifically probably something you need to change based on this text. But you're going to have to be honest with yourself and be remorseful and truly repent of a sin. But one of the things that I like about what John is telling us as he prepares the way for Jesus is not just to stop one thing and then just hope for the best and willpower through it. Stop one thing and start doing something else. You see what he's trying to teach us here? You stop one thing that you're doing that you shouldn't be doing, but you can replace that with something godly, something that reflects Christ. So what would that be for you? We're told in verse 18 that Luke tells us, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. He's preaching. This is a word of exhortation, but Luke calls it good news. This is the euangelion in Greek, the gospel, the good news. So Luke considers these tough things that John is teaching, these life changes, good news. It's good news because it's preparing your heart and my heart to receive Christ and really receive the death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a new year. It's a fresh start. What do you need to start doing? What do you need to stop doing? And what do you need to start doing?